Hello, everybody. You are listening to the Race V Fem Forest podcast, your source of empowering words, advice, and tips on entering and leveling up in the tech, space, and capital industry from none other than women who have walked that walk. You will also get a peek into their world by learning more about their field and their latest projects. Coming up, your weekly dose of inspiration. Dr. Mia Ella Uliero is a technology alchemist and she's an innovator at the edge of the impossible. At the peak of her career, she founded the Impact Institute for the Digital Economy, aiming at policy reforms for the adoption of latest technologies in all areas of society and sectors of the economy. She has held two prestigious research chairs and founded two research labs, leading numerous international research consortia, while holding appointments to a plethora of advisory boards and councils, among which the Science, Technology and Innovation Council of Canada, appointed by the Minister of Industry, the Science and Engineering Research Council of Singapore, appointed by the PM, expert to the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council on data-driven development, where as part of her work, she proposed blockchain to be added to the top 10 future and emerging technologies. So with that introduction and a great kickstart to this episode, I would like to welcome you on our show, Michaela. So first of all, I really want to thank you for being here with us today. You are involved in a lot of important projects that require your full attention and can take up quite some time. So I really appreciate the time you reserved to speak with us today. Also, we all got to hear your background in the intro just now. And I must say, what an amazing track record. This is the type of track record or profile I would like to present when someone says you should be a specialist in a specific industry or you just can't do it all. What also strikes me is that you have started this journey in emerging technologies and robotics approximately over 20 years ago, which was on itself a pretty niche area at that time and even rare among women to take on. So needlessly to say, I'm super excited to have this talk with you. I would love to just start with your journey, if you don't mind, and learn more about that. Would you be willing to take us through your background for a bit and tell us a bit more about how you got into this space? Yes, thank you so much, first of all, for inviting me to speak uh, on your podcast. Um, I really, you know, I'm a great fan of your work, of what you are doing, of giving the world an opportunity to be inspired by the careers of the amazing women. And this is also an inspiration source for myself, I can say. So thank you for doing it. I think it's a very important work. What can I say? I mean, with regard to the, my journey, every journey is, uh, is quite complex. I'm sure there's no like a linear path from birth uh, to, to where people get, uh, okay, what got you into robotics? But I can say that I remember being a child and, and watching some sci-fi movies and uh, with robots, and including Star Trek and so on and so forth. And I was always fascinated about the universe and how can we get there? How can we find out more, this curiosity? Then, of course, I was very much supported and encouraged by my family, by my parents, to study what I wanted. And uh, they, in particular, had a high regard for education. They were educators themselves. So that, I think, played an important role. And then I had wonderful teachers and mentors who inspired me to study physics, uh, literature, mathematics. So I had choices when I decided what I go to study in university. 
And I chose uh, automatic control and robotics. Luckily, that um, particular field of study was incipient in those times. And uh, I was one of the first generations that had the opportunity to study that. And, you know, that, of course, has opened more opportunities. So I think I cannot say exactly which steps led me there. There was a drive. And I think also the inspiration and also the perspiration, because it was not easy. It was very competitive to to go into the technical field. However, I'm from Eastern Europe, from Romania. So I have to say that in in Eastern Europe, there's a bit of a different uh, culture when it comes to, to women in technology. In my promotion, which was one of the first, as I mentioned, in automatic control and robotics, there were more women than men. And also, you know, when we finished studies, the, the ones who finished the first were also women. So it was kind of normal in my environment, which was quite limited at the time in Eastern Europe. But it was kind of normal, yes, to be at par with the guys when it comes to, to, to such studies and technology. Then when I moved to Germany for my PhD, what struck me is that there were only men in the Department of control engineering and robotics where I did my PhD and I was the first woman so I was it was very surprising for me and of course that's when a bit yeah it was a bit more uncomfortable but I had a lot of support from my PhD supervisor and uh, yeah I went on. That's a very interesting story. You just mentioned you needed perseverance as it wasn't easy to enter or be in the tech space at that time. What other traits helped you to get through that? I think, you know, if you focus on your work and do not focus on anything that discourages you, this is an art and I know it is much easier said than done. I remember I had times in which I suffered because I was um, at times treated unfairly by my male colleagues when I was doing my PhD. Even from, you know, when they were choosing an email address, they chose for me a name which was quite weird so they didn't put my full name there and they always made uh, comments not always but sometimes in uh, when we were going let's say for a team pizza and so on and so forth that oh yeah your field of study women are better there because it's fuzzy logic and the thinking of women is more fuzzy than men and so on and so forth so so there were comments like this but of course I initially as I was surprised and not pleasantly surprised, but there was a resilience and a determination which didn't let me give up. But on on the contrary, I think that's made me even more ambitious. Like, you know, I'm going to show you that. (laughs) Actually, women but also they can sing precisely and in all sorts of ways, like you do. So um, I don't know if there is a recipe, but I think to build a resilience and and self-confidence is very important. And uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So if we were to apply it to the fight or flight response, you chose to fight and you decided to activate yourself to show them that you can do it and you can persevere. And I can say that I'm very grateful in this regard to my parents because they have built this self-confidence in me. Since I was very young, they always encouraged me. Whatever I was trying to do, let's say write poetry or rollerblading, <laughs> skating and so on, they always encouraged me. You know, if I fell, go try again. And they gave me so much uh, really belief in myself that whatever was coming from the outside was not able to you know, deter me. I, I agree. Thank you for, for this uh, 
reminder for myself as well that I'm really grateful for that. I think that's what built uh, the fight response in me. Your character as well. Yes. So your passion lies in championing emerging technologies as a scientist and a business and government advisor, forging partnerships, funding alliances, and regional global projects to successfully design, pilot, and implement frontier technologies that change the way in which we live, work, and function in our rapidly changing world. How did you determine what your passion was or what field or industry you wanted to work in? Well, that is something which I wrote much later in my career. So where we left it, you know, my passion was for science and for new discoveries as an academic, because after my PhD, I went on to pursue an academic career. But at the same time, I also observed how the world works, because my field of study was uh, distributed intelligent systems. But on the other side, I with the advent of information technologies and with everyone having a mobile device, it started to impact society in unprecedented ways. So then I uh, focused my research on what I call the e-society, and that is uh, the mechanics of catalyzing action in the world by platforms such as the social networks, networking platforms like you know Facebook, Twitter. So what's going on in the world, and can we actually design these platforms a bit better? But at the same time, I noticed that the world doesn't function as it should, or at least as I would want it to, uh, because I was uh, I started to advise on information technologies several governments, you know, from Singapore to Europe to Canada. So I was on the Science, Technology, and Innovation Council of several in several parts of the world. And I became aware of challenges that are going on, but I also lived those challenges. So, for example, you know, in academia, the academic system is not really set to reward the most talented. So it is, you know, at times an old boys club. And if you are friends with the editor of a journal, they're going to publish you faster and sooner, and then you're going to get the promotion faster. And these things are going on not only in academia, but in many other places. So, so how do we reveal the truth and how do we actually create a more equitable world became a drive for me. And I saw that information technologies actually have the power to do that. Because um, when 9-11 happened, I was, so there are many threads to this story, but this is something to which I'm sure many people can relate. So when 9-11 happened, I was so impressed with what was going on and, and the response and uh, that could it have been done better than, you know, disasters like Katrina so happened. And at the time, I started to advise emergency responders on how to actually respond faster because I was aware that their systems did not use all the power of information technologies. So streamlining such response, you know, became for me a goal in itself. So, and if we can streamline such response, then you can streamline all sorts of bureaucracies and and implement policies, which are much better. And in that time, I have done simulation models that could show the effect of a decision on the world. Let's say a politician makes a policy. And then what will the effect be on the world and on the citizens to which that policy is applied? Because most of the time, nobody does that. Nobody thinks about that. They think, oh, that's going to be really great. So let's say now, let's print a lot of money. It's going to be really great in the long run. Or let's implement this health policy or that one. And with simulation models and with information technologies, we can actually determine the effects. This is also helpful in COVID, for example. So it is all about, so I learned it by doing that information technologies 
are very powerful in helping us deal with a lot of challenges. So I think the mouthful which you read about me and my passion is actually coined like this, that actually we can see and detect the effect of our actions in advance through predictive uh, simulation modeling. And then we can really make the best decisions with the help of information technologies. That's it. And I'm sure, I do not know, who wouldn't be passionate about that if they have the technological skill to actually help the world in this way. Mm. It also feels to me as a conscious and deliberate decision to work on the convergence of technology for good, be it to solve societal challenges or to overall improve it. What advice would you give anyone with regards to trying to find a passion? Yeah, exactly. And that's also, and I'm sure I don't want to sound cliche, but this is my experience. Yes. So actually your passion finds you. It's not like you're going to be born with this passion. So when I was doing my PhD, I was very interested in robotics and control engineering. But then I realized from the implementations, for example, in manufacturing plants of uh, what I learned in my PhD, then I, I realized that centralized structures actually are counterproductive. That, for example, if a new order comes to the supply chain, and you have a centralized planning system, you cannot readjust. So you cannot reorient your production in order to take on the emergency. So therefore, I focused on decentralized systems. Then when uh, I was working on supply chains and decentralizing them, I realized that actually what saved the day in instances like Katrina was actually Walmart was there because they had a supply chain and they can really deploy quickly the response. So I realized that emergency responders could, for example, benefit from such decentralization of their incident command system. So this is like on a case-by-case basis. If you are focused on making the world better and contributing to that in whatever way, you will use the innovative spirit which is innate in each of us to find a solution and put there whatever skill you have to help. So for me, that was a clear drive. That's why I shifted my work entirely from robotics and automation to e-society and to, to actually creating these infrastructures that can help us coordinate and catalyze action quickly and you know reorganize systems and, and for example, supply chains and so on and so forth around a need which is unexpected. And that's why you know emerging need and emerging technologies, it's a, it's a nice play here so they can respond. What I hear you say is basically follow your initial passion or that what you love to learn more about. And then along the way, when you are inspired by situations or possibly societal challenges or actually opportunities that you identify, you can allow yourself to be guided in a more organic manner. And then you can fine tune sort of like your purpose or your passion along the way. And again, it is an organic thing. So passion is, should not be fixed, something that you've determined when you are studying and then it cannot change. Is that correct? I think what is fixed is the desire to really make things better. That's something which is absolutely fixed. And then once you have this desire and an internal compass for fairness, for making the world better, for helping people, I think this is the rest is falling into place. So, yes, orient your passion towards what your heart is telling you and all the rest will fall into place. Did you have any defining moments in life or in your career that helped activate that internal compass? How does one become aware of its internal compass? Uh, I think it's both. I think it's it's um, 
I had, you know, my father was my hero and he was really a fighter for justice. And uh, whenever he looked at the world, they were also, my parents were philosophers and, and psychologists and historians. So I had this wisdom, you know, over dinner every evening, hearing them. I grew up listening to their thoughts and, and wisdom and regarding the world and how they, you know, wanted and had this drive to make it better. And they were so upset at the injustices happening in the world. So that was one which I think planted the seed. But then, of course, it felt to me that it's a natural compass. So I want to give them this credit that, you know, the values which they instilled in me have been driving my actions in the world throughout my career and throughout my life in general. So I made some drastic decisions. Like, for example, so I I conquered the academic ladder pretty quickly relative to others. I won two prestigious research chairs. I was a tenured professor. And then I left because I realized that in the academic system, I couldn't really do what I wanted to do in the real world. So then I stepped off. And that was quite an act of bravery, people say so, because, I mean, I could have a a very easy life as a tenured professor and then just teaching the same course over and over and, you know, going at conferences and traveling and so on. I'm not saying that every tenured professor does that, but, you know, people are, are fighting for tenure in order to have this kind of lifestyle. And that was not something which made me happy. I wanted to straighten so many things in the world. So then I was seeking those who are actually on that mission. And I partnered with them, be they startups or be they larger companies. And some on my way, some of them were only giving lip service to the cause. And then I left them. And, you know, you always find a way to follow that a compass, which is in, in synchronicity, I would say, or in alignment with your values. And values are so important. They're so important in our world in general. So. Yeah. So in terms of the career that was at times challenging, what factors or support system really helped you to get through that uh, in this particular field? You just mentioned your parents have been very prominent and a large factor of support in your upbringing and throughout your career, most probably. Were there any other factors that really helped you to operate in this particular field? Encouragement. So I was known until the last year of my high school. I was quite known in my native country as a poet, as a literary critic, and mainly in the humanities. I was awarded, I was on television, I was at, you know, many, let's say, creative, uh, in many creative environments that were set when I was in high school. And in the last year of uh, high school, I had a math teacher. So I was quite known in my high school for poetry. So he knew me as well. So, so he came to class one day with a book by Leibniz, which had a motto. And that motto was about one of Leibniz's students who gave up mathematics and he became a poet. And Leibniz said about him, of course, he did not have enough imagination for mathematics. And then he looked in my eyes and he said, if you think you have enough imagination, come see me after classes. So that was really, I, I, it was a shocking and defining moment for me because then I went to him and I said, but of course I have imagination. Poetry requires imagination. And I don't see how does math require imagination. And he said, yes, you can prove a theorem in many ways, in many creative ways. And math is the key to the universe. So then he trained me 
And from, from the, let's say, the literature Olympics, I moved in that year to the Math Olympics. And I, I won the Mathematics Olympiad uh, on my school, then on my city. And then I went, I qualified to the country level and, and further. And uh, that gave me so much, you know, it opened a new, a new universe for me and also gave me the, the courage, I would say, to embark on my, my robotics studies because um, it was very competitive in the time. I even remember my parents, they were supportive of me in everything, including science, but they were suggesting that I go to another university, also a technical one, because they said, oh, this is so difficult to because there was a competition to get in. And my mind said, I don't know if you will make it with only one year of training in math and all that. And I told her, one place, if it is, that will be mine. I think I was really crazy, <laughs> self-confident there. I did not enter the first one, <laughs> but there were enough, enough places there for me to get in. So there are such defining moments, I'm sure, in everyone's life. I think one has to be open to see them when they come, because... I was, for me, that, you know, when that quote from Leibniz, it really stuck in my mind and it touched the button, yes, in me, because I thought, okay, poetry, creativity, but not science and, and literature and everything in life, you know, you can express your creativity in so many ways. And now I express it in finding solutions for, for a more fair world, as, uh, as you were saying. I love it. And I think we're also getting a peek into how your character was built. Right. If, if you choose to go for that competition, whereas, you know, it's quite competitive, you still felt enormous confidence, most probably also in your capabilities because you've already developed them, obviously. But just to go ahead with it, even though it's a bit of a daunting environment and situation to be in, that's certainly says something about your character, which you've most probably extended throughout your entire career. So I, I definitely love it. And, and also how you got inspired by that motto and by these key people that came into your life and walked with you for a certain period and guided you or shared their information with you as well. And you just absorbed and now it's part of you, right? So that's, that's pretty fascinating. Um, so in terms of the possible biggest lessons during your career, what is one thing or maybe two lessons that you would definitely want to share with the audience? What can we learn from your career track? So one, I think for me is to not, you know, so, so avoid complacency as much as possible. So, so, you know, do not be scared to stop uh, a course if you do not feel it takes you where you want to be or it's not aligned with what you feel your mission or what you want to do. So for me, it was, that was um, not that, I mean, I'm, I'm still mentoring and, and teaching in other frameworks, of course, but I stopped that academic uh, track because it didn't lead me anywhere where I wanted to be. And uh, on the contrary, it was more blocking me from doing that, from doing real things in the world. And as you said, with this crazy health self-confidence, which <laughs> I don't want you know, to blame my parents too much for it, for it, but every entrepreneur who starts with a new idea, think of Elon Musk and, and others, they, you must have this degree of, of craze to actually go the course. And as such, you know, so don't let yourself caught in what society thinks, oh, this is a path to success, because you may end up in a place where you are not happy and fulfilled. That is a very important lesson, which, which I learned. It takes courage, of course, and self-confidence to jump of a, a let's call it, yes, a, a track or, or a train which is taking you mm. 
a comfort zone possibly as well. Yeah, exactly. Or it could be attached with ego maybe um, because society tells you you need to do a single thing or you identify with a title or a career track. And once you let that go, you lose sort of like a bit of identity. At least that's what the perception is from society. Totally. So yes. So now, you know, I mean, I am still known as a professor, but still it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not officially a professor anymore. And of course it's a title, which so many people fight for and they consider it the, you know, apotheosis of their life. You know, this is yeah, the supreme goal. And then what? So... So I completely agree. Yes, ego. Yeah, it's, it's a big obstacle in the way. And if we can have the self-awareness, and I'm, I'm sure there is a voice inside everyone which tells them if they are in the right place, don't be afraid to change or even to move from a, even if it's in the same job, you know, from a place to another, if you do not feel you are. Uh, first of all, if you are not appreciated, if you do not feel uh, your talents are, are being used as the right uh, as a full capacity maybe not every job offers that and you can do you know on the side hobbies and and other things but i you know my biggest lesson was that yeah do not be afraid to to stop a course just because society <laughs> says oh no this is really the great thing to do so mm, love that okay so after obtaining a PhD in robotics, as you just mentioned as well, you dove into distributed intelligent system designs through a postdoctoral work in Berkeley and embarked on a very successful academic career. That culminated with the Canada Research Chair Award and a tenured professorship. So with over 200 publications and 300 keynotes, which is a lot, uh, you also began to advise governments and organizations on the adoption of emerging technologies. With all of these amazing accomplishments and a challenging project, what does an average day or week look like for you? Can you give us a peek into your world? Wow. And of course, <laughs> it depends because now, right now, with the situation in the world, with uh, COVID having practically blocked <laughs> the world from moving, it's very different than I used to say that my home is in, my office is on an airplane and my home is in a hotel or, you know, <laughs> various airplanes and hotels because I, I live like that because this lifestyle, moving from an engagement to another. And um, it was so exciting. I learned so much. I felt that I contribute and it was also exhausting, but I, you know, I would not have done anything else. I had uh, at times in longer engagements, in, after I, I left academia, I had longer engagements like consulting and I set up many innovation labs around the world. But it was always mainly a lot of traveling and a lot of uh, new projects and new engagements. Very exciting, all of them. Hard to say no. <laughs> That's another lesson maybe which I should share that it's important to, and it's a game, as you say, maybe a matter of ego, but maybe a, a matter of thirst that you really want to see things done. And I cannot say no. When a project comes and presents the opportunity, even if I don't succeed, you know, because it's not only up to me, it's up to so many other factors, the entrenched institutions which we have, which are not easy to change. But uh, yeah, so it was a very busy and it still is a very busy life, but now busy in a different way in the sense that I am in my home office for a while and working on various projects with various companies, but mainly consulting, like I have this conversation with you and delivering reports and, and so on and so forth, and also giving keynotes 
much more than before because I can be in Japan now and in one hour I can be in San Francisco and then I can be in Europe. So I can have as many engagements as I want this time. It's, there is no uh, travel and time zone factor except, of course, <laughs> during the night in my time, which is more difficult with the keynotes in, in Asia. But yes, it's, it's a bit different now, but also maybe busier than ever. I feel that uh, we learned a lot of lessons from the situation. And so, you know, COVID was such an opportunity to remind us that we are so interdependent. My health depends on yours. And, you know, we live in this us versus them paradigm, which initially, and probably even now I hear that in Europe, they are thinking of it this way, that, okay, my country versus your country will be vaccinated first and so on and so forth. So we cannot beat the virus like that. Because if it is mutating in one country and in my neighbor country or, you know, in any country, people from there will come and it will start again in my country. So we need to vaccinate at scale and in synchronicity and, you know, in sync with, with all the other people. So I think that's such an opportunity to readjust our thinking to a more fair world and to recognize our interdependence of each other as well as of the larger nature. and of course, going up to the scale as I was starting yeah, to see our place on this planet and in the universe. So for me, it was such an opportunity to reflect about that. And I'm sure, yes, many of us have this awakening. So it is, it is this, um, how would I call it? So from us versus them to an interdependence take on, on the world. It's not easy because we grew up in us versus them <laughs> paradigms. So mm, very individualistic as well. Yes, very individualistic, exactly. Also, which now the pandemic can also forge somehow. Yes, so because I have to avoid other people. It depends where you come from. So, you know, now it's like, okay, I'm going to protect myself from, from the virus by avoiding other people, which is fine. Because actually, but I, I am thinking of it differently. I'm like, I'm responsible for the health of other people as such. I'm not going to go outside without a mask. So it is both empowering for me, but also it raises this self-awareness in me that, oh, their lives depend on me. So it is a responsibility for me to take care in whatever way I can. So keeping healthy, it's a responsibility for keeping others healthy as well. It's, uh... Certainly. So... In summary, you are occupied with various assignments and engagements on a weekly basis. Prior to COVID, your responsibilities also required quite a bit of travel, but it was still very exciting. Due to the restrictions of this pandemic, you noticed a shift in workload, but also the opportunity to engage more internationally since our digital world allows for that. Moreover, what COVID also brought us is the possibility to reflect on the shift of interdependence and how we are ought to look after one another even more. Thank you for these insights, Michaela. So I'm a big fan of the tech industry and a promoter of convergence and adoption of these emerging technologies myself. So for selfish reasons, I would love to pick your brain there for a bit as well. You have built major multi-stakeholder programs and you hold appointments to numerous executive boards and councils, which we also heard in the introduction. As an expert of emerging technologies, you've most certainly observed the evolution and adoption rates of its applications over the past years. What would you say is the maturity and readiness levels of these technologies in some of our largest industries? 
Are there any positive trends, any challenges we need to be looking at? I'm going, of course, I do not know about all technologies. I can say because there are many emerging technologies, you know, in the fields of materials and let's say physics and batteries and so on and so forth, which I don't know about. My field is information technologies. So I'm going to restrict myself to that. So we're talking here about mainly information technologies, um, artificial intelligence, as well as, uh, let's say, distributed systems now fueled by blockchain technologies, distributed ledger, Internet of Things, also fueled by information technologies. And more recently, what is I find the most fascinating for me, maybe because I'm not in medicine, and I'm not in the health sciences, is genome editing, CRISPR. So this is also, it's a way in which we use information technologies to practically do mutations of the genome, not only in plants and animals, like for example, they managed to do that in mosquitoes in order to sterilize mosquito females. So they do not transmit malaria anymore because mosquito females, only when they producing eggs, that's when they need human blood, um, or blood in general, because <laughs> then they become more aggressive. So uh, CRISPR is, uh, or genome editing, is also very useful in humans. And of course, it's a very, like every technology, it's a very controversial way to apply it to humans because... So do we have this right? And many people are thinking, do we have the right? Actually, is it ethical to modify a human species? So, for example, you can edit the genome of a fetus in order to avoid that person for having a disease. So you can eliminate a disease that can plague that person or before they are born. And many parents were asked if they would like to do that to their babies. And they said, of course, rather than having them suffer from this disease, definitely I would like to have that intervention. So these are very major ethical problems of our society in the first place. But the technology is what is enabled. And I think in, in the long run, it will enable more healthy, more happy humanity but who knows where will it take us this is also you know combined with technology like artificial intelligence and robotics one of my latest um, phd students who is now a canada research chair in internet of things his phd was uh, brain computer interfaces his name is alexis morris i have very high esteem for his work and his talent and he studied you know implants which we can put in the brain to also help for example people who lost their limbs to use a computer just with their eyes or with their thoughts which is fascinating also so it's part of the internet of things but it's also a part of us becoming cyborgs so do we really have the right to do that to a human being if they want and with their permission but how is that modifying the human species because in the same way we can you know, enhance the human cognition through such implants and such technologies. So it's, again, the more you go to the edge, the more you are at the edge with the ethics and the transformation. So technology is really transforming us as humanity. So you asked me about the impact on industries. Of course, there is a huge impact on industries. But as I mentioned before, my passion is about making the world better. And the industry is the one which should actually adapt itself to that. Like if I am to cure an illness before birth in a, a fetus, then 
of course, there will be a whole industry developed for that. So it is not the industry per se that I'm passionate about and how technology is developing it, but how technology is helping humanity and helping us transcend our limitations, but also making our lives better. Mm. So you are also the president of the Impact Institute, a consulting arm of your work, that which you already briefly touched upon, aiming at policy reforms for the adoption of latest digital technologies in all areas of society and sectors of the economy. One of the projects was to identify roadblocks to open innovation and mediate the gap between the traditional entrenched modes of production and the novel digitally driven ones to ensure a smooth transition. Would you be able to share one or two roadblocks with us that we need to look at when considering open innovation? <laughs> one of the roadblocks, <laughs> I would say incumbents, incumbents, incumbents. And sometimes I say it mental costs. Because as you manage, as you manage to explain, you know, maybe even better, my uh, what drives me. So it is practically the values which drive us, but also how we learn and what we learn about the world and ourselves in, in the early formative years. And as such, if we, uh, you know, grew up in a certain system, let's say with bureaucracy and control, and let's say you have to go from this department to that department to stamp one piece of paper and it will take about three months to, to do that. Versus with information technologies, you can do that in, you know, seamless in one second because you only have to press a button on an app and it's done. And you confirm that, yes, I signed here and it will be recorded and also certified. So there's so much resistance to such simple and just seamless and, you know, like no brainer, I would call it innovations that can make our life better, also industry better, and, and the flow much more seamless in the world. So my so impact in, in, in my Impact Institute comes from innovation management and policy accelerated with communication technologies, much in the same manner as I mentioned with this seamless, seamless manner, because I advised on innovation and, of course, also as an academic. I mean, many of my students... One of my first master's students, for example, was the co-founder of Uber, Garrett Kemp. So, but he wasn't happy in, you know, when he was doing his master's because he didn't have the support from the university at the time. And uh, he wanted to start the company. And so he had to move to California to do that. So now he's there anyway. <laughs> and, and that company was a result of his master's thesis. The master's thesis was called In Order, and it was about improving Google via a new way of search. So he went to California and then Google bought his innovation and it became StumbleUpon, which I'm sure many of you are using. And then there he met uh, Travis uh, Kalanick and they started Uber. So innovation is everywhere. We just need to support it. And that is an example where I think our policies and our awareness, because in academia, the incentives are not given for innovation. These are the wrong incentives. It's like, if you have more papers than the other, then you will be promoted first. So people are thinking, okay, so let's write more papers. Let's recycle whatever simulations we have and write more papers. Rather than supporting an, you know, supporting an innovative idea and, and giving also a financial support and creating incubators in those environments where you have the talent people. So I, I 
worked on that, on such innovations, in not only in universities, but also I was on the first Science, Technology and Innovation Council of Canada, where I was working on policies. And then I realized that there is a big gap that we have to fill. And that it is an art to actually unleash innovation. And that innovation is being blocked by the wrong policies. So I even designed some simulation models with my my artificial intelligence skills to show that the way in which we give grants in academia is actually and the rules of those grants, how what you can spend them on and how are actually set so you will never manage to be successful. <laughs> so it is it is this what I'm probably yeah that answers your question. So what do we have to do and how do we point to those wrong policies that are blockages to the way of innovation? Would you say this would also go for how to accelerate the growth and maturity of technologies that you just spoke about? Is it predominantly policy development and allowing for these incubation platforms to exist? Third would be incentivization that needs to be adapted. Would that be correct? Yeah, I could not agree more. Thank you so much for referring to that, because that is a very hot topic right now, especially for distributed ledger technologies. So they have been very much, you know, there's done, there's been a lot of injustice to them because of, uh, of course, <laughs> humans will find ways to use a technology in good or in less good ways, like with the cryptocurrency. So there were some scams and there were hacks and so on and so forth. But that doesn't make the technology wrong, you know. So there's so much opposition to adopting distributed ledger technologies and so much, you know, everybody is scared because they do not understand the technology and how much it can be, how much good it can be, it can do. So I am engaged here with the Congressional Blockchain Caucus. I'm speaking from Washington, D.C., which I think I didn't cover <laughs> in, in my introduction. But also I'm, I'm engaged with several uh, companies and around the U.S., but also around the world to work with legislative assemblies for the adoption of digital asset management and other innovative technologies in uh, for example, situation, as I mentioned, for example, for mortgages, streamlining mortgages, you know, so everything can be digitized and also can be certified. Also in supply chains, like, for example, from farm to table in Wyoming, there's a project called Beef Chain that is certifying that a certain meat comes from a farmer which takes care of it. So this is like an art, you know, artisan way of, of raising the cows. And also, of course, this is also used in projects to bring from small farmers to table in Africa. Uh, so to include the small, small farmers in the larger supply chain with, with large retailers. So, and they are, you know, it's related to food safety, but also to recognition of organics and so on and so forth. However, there's so much opposition to adopting blockchain technologies by legislators. And that's also, you know, it's exactly the point I was making that the policies are blocking innovation, which can be really, really crucial, including for, you know, we can have our driver's licenses, we don't need to be in person, I can have everything on blockchain and many, many other applications. That's too much to, I don't want to hijack <laughs> the conversation because I'm so passionate about it. And you really touched the painful point there with your question. Very interesting insights. Would you be able to give us your projections on what we can expect from these emerging technologies in the, let's say, near future or midterm? What top-line macro trends would you be able to share with us? 
Yes. I mean, you know, to take on from, I mean, it's smart city, I think, is uh, the buzzword which which comes to mind because it's not only about one technology, it's about a convergence of technologies, yes. And the exponential effects that this convergence has because technological impact is being accelerated once more technologies are coming together, like in the case of artificial intelligence and blockchain and Internet of Things. And now, one of the, I think, most impactful and, of course, accelerated also by the fact that we need to lead virtual life like we do here as well. But um, also, there are so many advances in virtual reality, augmented reality, that now people can actually diagnose cars and airplanes remotely. They can also design sophisticated equipment as a team through virtual reality. You just put your Oculus and goggles and, and then are immersed and can design, can teach, can train pilots, you know, and uh, astronauts virtually. It is truly an amazing opportunity for us. And, and I think not only to bring us closer together, but also to ensure continuity during times such as this. So, so it's a huge impact. So when I say smart city, it's not only everyone in their home with virtual reality goggles, but it's also, yes, the, the traffic when hopefully things are going back to normal, streamlining traffic through sensors, the intelligent car, of course, all of us living seamless. If I am flying, then, you know, I do not need a paper passport, which can be lost or stolen. Uh, I just use my fingerprint and everything is going to be set, including the smart car will be in front of the airport once I get seamlessly through all the checks, checking point and the suitcase is delivered to me also at the door because it recognizes me through sensors. So everything, a seamless life is on the horizon if we can unleash the power, the true power of these technologies. Mm. How amazing is that and how exciting, right? To look forward to that. But also healthy life, yes. And of course, yeah, it's uh, technologies also, yes, for a greener life and for enabling us to have more, uh, less, let's say, asphalt and more green in our lives. So technologies on themselves are not as important as its convergence. And we should also really take the exponential impact of these technologies into account. You highlighted a few applications that we can expect, such as smart city, VR and AR, IoT and smart cars. But in summary, everything for a seamless, healthier and greener life is on the horizon if we can unleash the power of these technologies. And if I can say something here, you know, because um, with COVID, we have experienced one thing, at least here in the US, I did experience it and it was really shocking, although I know a lot about it. So I experienced what it means exponential. Because so, you know, the pandemic spread first from China and then it hit Europe. And Italy was going really down very fast. And we were watching from here. And I remember I was even on a cruise in the beginning of March when we were just watching and like, oh, yeah, everything will be fine. There's one, two places, two, two people sick here. When I returned, the country was on lockdown. And that means, so it was one week cruise. So that is what means exponential, that you cannot practically stop something once it hits a tipping point. So this is the same what is happening with climate. So that is why climate scientists are really, really, really 
worried about what's going to happen when we get at that tipping point and we cannot stop it anymore. You know, we will have fires and all sorts of disasters that really we cannot control anymore. And also, yes, technology, technological advancement may not be fast enough to help us. So therefore, it is very important to set the right policies. So it's the same process which I expressed when we block innovation. So it's the same process we can block the efforts to actually beat the climate exponential advancement. Yeah, the, the climate monster, which I think can be, and it will be, hopefully not, not it will be, can be. And if it, it will happen, it will be much, much worse than the pandemic monster. So, uh, yeah. So the exponential effects can be observed across other societal themes, such as the pandemic and the climate crisis. In order for the technologies to properly support us in all of these challenges, we need to block the efforts, in your words, and really focus on policy development. With regards to policy development, though, there are so many other facets that go into that as well. You need to clarify the macro objectives, define the appropriate strategy, properly map out and select and include the stakeholders involved, select the appropriate technology, and of course, establish an ethics and governance structure. There's a lot to dive into when it comes to policy development, I believe. There is. There is a lot. There is a lot. And what I would like to say is mainly the same thing, incumbents, incumbents, incumbents. There is a lot. So, so yes. Yeah, so, and, and, and here is again what I was saying about incumbents, incumbents, incumbents. There is a lot to say here. There is a lot of lip service going on regarding climate and a lot of, you know, so-called greenwash. Naomi Klein, who is an activist and a professor and an amazing militant for climate, she can see through things. And recently she wrote a very powerful editorial about the so-called Davos Agenda. So this year, of course, Davos, and I'm involved uh, with the World Economic Forum. I've been on the Council on Data-Driven Development. I also did put the blockchain on the top 10 emerging technologies at the World Economic Forum. But I've also been critical of what's going on in Davos, like many have been. But what she noticed is that the Davos agenda is all about stakeholder capitalism, which is supposedly, you know, meant to bring all the stakeholders, as you mentioned, in alignment with the climate problem. So they put their money where their mouth is in order to solve the problem. However, if you look through the intricacies of what she calls this scheme, it is only working to enrich the incumbents. So those who are already with deep pockets and not really, really aligned, who wants to keep their positions and who want uh, their own companies to prosper still uh, in the name of, uh, yeah, so greenwash. So, so this is a game. As you mentioned, so my, my answer to your question, even more, watch for the incumbents, yes, and, 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 and see through such elaborate schemes, which is very hard to, to do, especially, yes, when, when they are saying the right things. So that is also, I think, a mission for scientists, because we, I think we are dedicated to the truth. This is why I'm a scientist. I want to find out more and to uncover the truth about things which, you know, at the first glance, they look in a way, but if I dig in, then they look differently. So that is that is very important, speaking of the climate problem, to get the, the world aligned in a truthful way on the matter. Great addition. Thank you for that. So a strong interest of yours is how to foster economic development 
leverage and adopt frontier technologies to improve health, education, operations, sustainability, and security. What is your mission with regards to this interest and your work? What are you set out to achieve? Yeah, so right now I am working with a champion of this economic development, which is also can be called financial inclusion. So I'm working with several, of course, large organizations uh, and, and being involved in many various projects, you know, with the United Nations, with World Economic Forum. World Economic Forum is actually fostering a lot of, of such uh, pilots around the world. And, but in particular, I am interested in financial inclusion and giving people opportunities. And of course, there are pioneers and militants around the world, like Will Rudy, who, for example, he went to Kenya and he gave people, so he realized that there are young young people there who don't have work and they don't have work because nobody could pay them in their community for and but people needed work done like for example one person needed let's say the walls to be painted and someone knew how to do it but that person with the walls <laughs> who needed the, the work for the painting work didn't have money to pay the person who could deliver the work and so on and there was a chain like that in which people the work was needed but the they needed some support to get started to with a microeconomy, let's call it. And and Will has created some color paper, which he called money for different color, different value. And he just gave to people so they can keep track of, you know, the debt and, and someone was doing the work. But then from that initial spark, a whole economy started because people then, they managed that debt and then Red Cross came and gave them the money to cover the debt. So, okay, work was done. There was created value. You can engage a nonprofit and uh, and do that. We call that financial inclusion. Initially, the incumbents, the the Kenyan government, through Will Rudik, who is actually a rocket scientist, but he just realized what's going on in the world, and he said, "I'm not going to look at the sky anymore. I'm going to look <laughs> to the to the problems on this planet." That was very inspiring for me when I heard his story. So. That is what we call financial inclusion. And with blockchain technologies, with artificial intelligence, we can actually calculate credit and debt and everything and keep track of things like this, like the paper money, which which will unleash. But we can put this money on blockchain, yes, in an encrypted form, and we can orchestrate such financial systems. So I'm very passionate about working in the developing world on financial inclusion, and I think this is going to create a new, how we call it, yes. So there is a social network operating system of which I was very passionate with my e-society work, but it runs on a financial network operating system. And how the this operating system is set now, it is set, as I was mentioning before, to favor those with deep pockets, the incumbents. So when do we give a chance to the other ones, to the unbanked, to those who actually have talent? And have something to give, but they do not have an opportunity to start and put that in value. So it's uh, it's a mission which I undertook and which technology can solve now to, to shift and to change, to redesign the financial operating system of the world in a more fair, inclusive way. That's an amazing mission, Michaela. So we are slowly wrapping up this interesting talk. But before we do that, if people want to connect, reach out, or simply want to stay up to date with your activities, where can they find you? 
uh, the best uh, is uh, on LinkedIn. So my name is uh, spelled correctly, I'm sure, in your podcast frame. So just contact me on LinkedIn. If you are not on LinkedIn, of course, you will find also other ways to find me. But for me, LinkedIn is the professional way to, to be contacted. Right. And then with regards to your papers, we can find them on the usual platforms? My papers are all, yes, they are all on my website, theimpactinstitute.org. That is, in one word, theimpactinstitute.org. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and for sharing your inspiring work with us. Again, I'm personally very interested in your work and insights, and we'll definitely stay up to date. For now, I wish you all the best with your current and upcoming endeavors. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this work, Salma. It is crucial, as I mentioned in the beginning, and I will be listening with highest interest to your podcast in the future. My dear podcast listeners, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode today. Make sure to share it with someone who you think will find it valuable as well. And if you want to have your weekly dose of inspiration, make sure to subscribe here or follow our LinkedIn and Twitter page for updates. For more information on the firm behind this podcast, please visit www.raisev.com. Stay safe, stay healthy, and until next time.